chapter 3. Let me remind you again what it is that we are, we are doing as we look at the capstone prayer in the book of Ephesians. Um, we are trying to take a step back, and instead of just looking at this as a model prayer, one that we can pray, which again I would encourage you to do, uh, we are trying to reverse engineer what Paul is doing here. We're trying to understand this prayer as definitively God's will for your life. In other words, because this is not just the prayers of Paul for us, but also the word of God for us, we're seeking to understand what it is that God is doing in our lives. And so last week we looked at the primary petitions of Paul's prayers, uh, and we saw that he was progressively praying towards the end game towards the big picture, towards the goal that in his language in the prayer that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And as we saw last week, effectively he's declared us to be the temple of God and he prays that we would truly be what God has made us, that we would fulfill our purpose as a temple to be filled with the very presence of God, that the presence of God would be manifest in us and through us to one another and to the world. And we also saw that for that to happen, We need to more deeply and greatly comprehend the love of Christ, that the only path for us to uh, fulfill our full potential as a church, that the only path to true holiness in the Christian life, that the only means by which we grow into what God is making us is through a deeper comprehension of God's love for us. But we also saw that that is impossible in our own ability and in our own strength. And so before he prays those things, he prays primarily for power, that we would be empowered and strengthened so that we can know the love of Christ, so that we can be filled with all the fullness of God. Now what he does here in verse 20 is he turns to what we call a doxology, which is just an uh, ascription of praise to God, okay? And in doing so, he kind of shifts from prayer to praise. But also, it's pretty clear here that this is not just a doxology that closes Paul's prayer, but that closes the first half of the book of Ephesians. In other words, as I argued last week, uh, everything that follows in the book of Ephesians, all the exhortations and commandments uh, and callings that come in chapter 4, 5, and 6 are built upon chapters 1, 2, and 3, and to get into the new chapters, we have to go through the gate of Paul's prayer, okay? And so he closes here with a doxology to set the framework for what is to come, and this is not uncommon. Paul does the same thing in the book of Romans. If you open up the book of Romans and you start reading in chapter 1, what you have is kind of a theological dissertation on what God has done to bring us to salvation and how it all works, and he walks through 
our need for salvation in 1 through 3. He walks through the fact that it's by faith alone in chapter 4, that we've now been grafted into Jesus instead of Adam in chapter 5, that the old man is dead and we're now dead to our sins in chapter 6 and 7, that we're filled with the Spirit and walk in life in 8. And then he has this digression where he deals with Israel in 9, 10, and 11, and he finishes 11 with a doxology. How unsearchable are your judgments, O Lord, and your ways past finding out. Okay, he's just overwhelmed with the glory of God, and then he gets to 12.1 and he says, I beg you, therefore, brethren. Okay, and so the format is not an uncommon one, but it is especially significant in Ephesians. And what I'd like to suggest to you is that this morning, in this doxology, in this ascription of praise to God, we find not just, again, a piece of liturgy that we could use. And we do. I don't know if you'll recognize this, but we often close our services with these verses. In, in the place of our benediction, we read this doxology. Okay, that is a common thing. But instead, I want to look at it, and I want to reflect here on the foundational realities that begin the Christian walk, on the foundational starting place for the therefore of chapter 4. Okay. So let's read it together, we'll pray, and we'll look closer. Chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Paul points to you this morning. To you be the glory. And not just in Paul's letter or even in Paul's day, but throughout all generations forever and ever. And so I pray, God, that you would magnify that glory in our understanding, that we would have a fresh awe of who you are and what you've done, and that you would instill in us this foundation, this basis for living the Christian life. And we pray that you'd help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I have just a couple of points I want to draw your attention to this morning, and the first one has to do with the fact that this is a doxology at all. And again, it's pretty easy to see how a doxology functions. Notice in verse 20, to him, and then he picks up in verse 21 again, to him be the glory. That's what we mean when we say a doxology. It's an ascription of praise to God. And as I already pointed out to you, this is a common feature that we find in many of Paul's more doctrinal letters, his, what we call his general epistles, okay? Ones where he's not dealing with crap that's sprung up in the church that needs to be addressed, his disciplinary letters. Okay, so um, this doxology here, though, is especially appropriate in Ephesians. And I'll show you why I say that, because notice back in chapter 1 how Paul opens the book of Ephesians in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay. Notice that that is also a form of doxology. 
It doesn't say to God be the glory. It says, blessed be God. And when we read this in Ephesians, I think it's sometimes helpful for us to just read it as praise be to God. Because we don't really say blessed be, right? We might say the Lord bless you. But we don't say it like this. We don't give a beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are the, right? That's similar to here, but it's pretty clear that, Jesus, or that Paul is making a play on words here. Why is God blessed? Because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Okay. But it is synonymous with the idea of praise. He's drawing attention to the Ephesians and to us and saying, we should begin before we talk about anything else by praising God for the insurmountable wealth of blessings he has given us in Christ Jesus. That's how the letter opens. And it doesn't just open as an aside, but he walks through those blessings one by one in verses 3 through 14, moving through all of our salvation, okay? And so Ephesians begins with an ascription of praise to God, and he closes here in chapter 3 with an ascription of praise to God. And in between those, we have two individual prayers The first one at the end of chapter 1 where he prays that they might know the glorious inheritance, the hope they have in Christ Jesus and the power that now works in them. And then he closes again with the prayer that we read read last week in chapter 3. In other words, the text of chapter 1 through 3 is not a theological dissertation. It's not a doctrinal paper. It is a ascription of praise to God. It is an act of worship and a call to worship, okay? It is framed here liturgically in worship language. In fact, the only things that aren't either prayer or praise in Ephesians are best understood as explanatory digressions, so Paul can get back to praying and praising, okay? That is the focus here, and this is essential for us to understand Because Ephesians begins in worship and then flows into daily life. Ephesians begins with being blown away by the goodness of God and praising him. And that praise turns into practice as we walk in the ways of Jesus. Now, if you've been around the church often, if you're used to expositional preaching where people preach through books of the Bible, it is not uncommon for people to point out that Paul has a tendency to start with doctrine and then move to application. Actually, lots of preachers do that too. They'll lay out the indicatives of who God is and what he has done, and then the imperatives of how we should respond, okay? And for many years, that's how I've thought of the book of Ephesians, as a division between doctrine and application, as a division between who God is and what he's done, and therefore, therefore, what we should do. But it struck me as I studied the book of Ephesians this time around that that doesn't go far enough. That the idea is not just, this is who God is, therefore this is who we should be, or even this is what God has done. It is, God is worthy of worship, Praise God, be overwhelmed by his glory, and then therefore, which is why Marcus Bart calls uh, this um, book of Ephesians a book of doxological imperatives, okay? Commands that flow from the glory of God. Now, this is essential for us to understand because Paul is going to go on and he is going to call us to make drastic changes in our daily life. 
He's going to call us to forsake behaviors that are natural and habitual to us. He's going to call us into places of sacrifice and vulnerability. He's going to call us into places to, uh, to act different and look different and choose different than the people around us. And he knows that all of those things have a cost. In fact, if I can borrow the language of Jesus, what does it look like to follow Jesus according to Jesus? To take up your cross and to die daily. That's cost. In fact, Jesus encouraged all whom would follow him to count the cost. But what Paul does before he presents the cost is he weighs the reward and the value. And I want you to notice here that the reward and the value is not eternal life. It is God himself. It is the goodness and glory of a life with God. This is why Jesus told that parable, as Nick mentioned a few weeks ago, of the man who comes across a treasure buried in the field and sells everything he has to get the treasure. The treasure is Jesus, as we see here. Every spiritual blessing available in him, the goodness and overwhelming goodness of God. Now, why is this important? The reason is because our go-to understanding of how life works with God gets this backwards. It thinks, first, we need to do chapters 4, 5, and 6, and then we will get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. First, we need to no longer behave these things, stop lying, remove sexual immorality, go away from these things, and then, if we're lucky, God will reward us will give us unsearchable riches, as Paul says in Ephesians 3. But instead, the Christian life is best understood as a response to the goodness of God, not our goodness to get God to respond. And we have to get this right because here's a challenge of the way that we approach the New Testament. When Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians to this church in Ephesus, what was their first experience of this letter? Somebody would have stood up, as I'm doing now, and read it from beginning to end. And maybe that would have happened multiple times. But the book of Ephesians is a unit. It is a whole. It goes all together. But what happens when, as we do here, and there's reasons we do this, it's a good thing to do, but what happens when we slow down And we spend a couple of months just living in chapters 4, 5, and 6. We forget 1, 2, 3. And we start to think, all right, I've got to get my head down. I've got to get my life in order. I've got to gear up. I've got to fix this. I've got to do this. If we forget, if we neglect the doxology here, that to him be the glory, if we forget this overwhelming reality of praise and worship, then our our desire to please God will be wrong-headed. Okay. We seek change in our life first this morning because we recognize the goodness of God and that if God is good, his will is good. And that because we see the good character of God, we desire to be like him. And because we value who Jesus is to us, we desire to be like Jesus. And Paul will give us great and beneficial reminders of this. Just look at how he opens chapter 5. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. And then notice he says, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He doesn't just say, be loving and God will love you. He says, be loving as God has loved you. 
See the difference there? The order matters. This is a cart before the horse scenario. We have to keep this in mind. We imitate God because God has loved us as his children. And notice that. Here when he calls us to be imitators as beloved children, he's not just pointing out the fact that kids learn by modeling, although they do. In fact, any of you who are parents know how sometimes that backfires as your children, you know, throw an angry fit at one of their toys and you're like, hmm, they saw me do that in the car the other day when that guy cut me off, right? Modeling is a natural part of childhood, but the point here is more important. When he says we imitate our father as beloved children, that means that the love is not distant and objective. It's not like we looked at Jesus and went, oh, wow, he's really good at loving people. I want to be like that. No, we go, oh, wow, look at how Jesus has loved me. Okay, it's not just repetition, but uh, reciprocal. Responding to your reception of God's love. Okay, and so again, the idea here is not that we seek to earn God's favor. In Jesus Christ, you have it. And that overflows into a desire to honor and please and glorify God, not just with our mouths, but with our minds and with our attitudes and with our giving and with our sacrifice and with everything else. Our life becomes consumed in worship. I mentioned to you earlier that this is similar to the way the book of Romans is written, as Paul also finishes with an overwhelming doxology of how amazing God's plan is. And then this is how he opens chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I beg you, therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. If you truly comprehend if you truly experience an encounter, if you truly are impacted by how glorious God really is, how deep his goodness really goes, how overwhelming his love, how pure his holiness, if you really get who God is, the reasonable response to that is your entire life. That you would offer your bodies, everything that you are, every expression of yourself as a living sacrifice day by day, putting on the altar all things. And Paul says that's your reasonable act of worship. But again, notice the order. He doesn't say, sacrifice your lives and then maybe God will be merciful. He says, God has been merciful, therefore, because of his mercies, offer yourself a living sacrifice. Okay. And so, if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is really important to understand We're not here, gathered in this room, to prove anything to God. We're not here to demonstrate our worth or value or goodness. In fact, we're here because we are so unworthy, and we've been overwhelmed by the acceptance that God offers in Jesus Christ. Okay, That difference is the difference between heaven and hell. That difference is the difference between the God who is and the imaginary God we make in our own image. That difference is the difference between the proclamation of Jesus that all who are weary and heavy laden should come to him and he will give them rest and the religious proffers who say this is the way to earn the way and give you instructions for life. The gospel, as we call it, the good news is not that we know the right way to live that will please God. The good news is that Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief. But if you get that, 
If you really get that, if you understand that, if you comprehend it, if you take some time, even this afternoon, and read through Ephesians 1 through 3 in their entirety, then you will see that it is obvious and natural to do so. That it is just the natural response to the goodness of God. But that's not all. Notice what else he says here. He says, to him be the glory, but notice verse 20. To who? To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that's at work within us. Okay. Now, first, a little bit of a word study. When it says to him who is able, that's not a bad translation. This word here is translated able in this uh, Uh, in this way all throughout the New Testament. But it is the same word that is used uh, in the second half of the verse when it says according to the power. Okay, both of those come from the Greek word dunamis, where we get our word dynamic, okay? So I would suggest if you really want to get Paul's point, it's better to read it as to him who is powerful, okay? To him who is powerful enough to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. Because he's making a play on words, just like in the beginning, blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Here, to him who is powerful to empower us with the power that now works in us. That is what's going on here in the sentence. Okay. And so, surprise, surprise, after the prayer we saw last week, which was what? A prayer for strength, a prayer for power, Paul praises the powerful God who empowers us. Okay. That's the point here. That's what he wants to draw our attention to. And the thing about doxologies is God is so infinitely good that you can't describe it all. We have an entire Bible and we haven't exhausted the goodness of God, okay? And so this doxology only points to one thing, but I want to remind you again that it points to the thing that Paul wants us to understand, the thing that he's been focusing on and illustrating, okay? And the power of God flows through Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. It has been his primary point. Okay, so for example, going back to the end of Ephesians chapter 1, notice, uh, notice what he says here in verse um, 17. This is the prayer that I mentioned that ends chapter 1. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know, first, what is the hope which he called you, second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and then look at third, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Okay. He says, I pray, Ephesian church, I pray for you, Calvary the Hill, I pray that you would come to know, with God's help, the power that God has made available to us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, side note, because this just hit me, I've never seen it before. It's interesting that in this prayer, in chapter 1, he prays that we would know the power, and in chapter 3, he prays that we would be empowered to know. There's a relationship between those two things that's worth exploring on another day. But for, for now, I want you to notice that power is a point that Paul wants to make. Why is he writing Ephesians? He wants us to know the power, okay? And it doesn't stop there. In fact, Paul mentions it in his own life. Look at chapter 3. Look at 
And look at what he says in verse 7. He says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of what? By the working of his power. Now, Paul talks about grace or gifts or his calling all the time. Only here does he make clear that he was given this grace by the working of his power. Why? Because he's trying to strum the same chord This is going to be meaningless, but it will illustrate it nonetheless. So there's a rock opera by The Who called Tommy. And there's a single power chord in it that runs through the entire concert. It is the thread that ties the whole thing together. And I have no idea what the chord is. I'm not an instrument, uh, you know, I'm not a musician. Um, but every time you hear it, you're reminded. Power in the book of Ephesians is like that. It's like, oh, right, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're thinking through. And we looked last week at his prayer that we would be strengthened, but how are we strengthened? Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. It's everywhere in chapters 1 through 3. And what's the point? The point is, if we're going to move into the cost of chapters 4, 5, and 6, the application, the life changes, the walk, if we're going to move into those, we have to remember that we do that according to the power of God. That we are enabled and empowered for that life. Okay. In other words, Jesus doesn't go, uh, there, I've saved you, now get your act together. Part of what it means to be saved is that he has empowered us for righteousness. We now have a new resource to draw on. And so in the same way that our old man, Paul will say in chapter 4, is dead, we also have experienced and become the new man in Jesus Christ, and therefore we can walk in newness of life. Okay? And this is essential, again, Because the idea here is not just that God has forgiven us of our sins and saved us from judgment, although he has clearly done that. But also that he has saved us from the power of sin in our life by empowering us through his Holy Spirit. Okay. And Paul is overwhelmed by that reality and he closes the conclusion by drawing our attention to that and calling us to praise God for it, but it flows through the rest of Ephesians as well. It is essential that we get this. Okay. Now, before we look at what Paul says about that power in this doxology, because he says two things, I just, I just want you to see why this is essential. This is essential because as we get into chapter 4, he's going to call us to live as a body of believers in unity and in peace. And that is not something we do through our own ability. In fact, it is one of the marvelous manifestations in chapter 2 of God's power. How do we know that God is powerful? Because he killed the hostility and made the two one. That's something that he has done. And so we don't respond to that by coming up with man-made systems and man-made effort to make each other one. We need God's help for that. In the same way, he's going to tell us to no longer walk in the ways of darkness with deceit and with greed and with sexual immorality and these types of things. 
but we only can do that by reliance upon the God who saved us. We only can do that with the help of the Holy Spirit. Righteousness for human beings is not reduced down to choices. Jesus said those who sin are slaves to sin. We are in a losing battle against the worst parts of us and are incapable of changing our lives apart from the powerful work of God. And so again, this is essential for us to understand. And again, this is an easy pitfall to work in as we look at so many exhortations here. As Jesus tells us that husbands need to sacrifice their very lives for their wives and that wives need to submit to their husbands. As he tells us that we need to um, stand strong against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. We can only do those things with God's help. Salvation is not a two-part process where God does the initial part and then we do the second part. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the author and the finisher of your salvation. He is working on us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. These are essential for us to understand, and so Paul emphasizes that here, and again, if you're not a Christian, this is important. Christianity isn't a call to reform your life, to try harder, to pull yourself up by the own your own bootstraps. It is an offer of divine enabling to be good. And maybe you relate like I do and so many of us do so often to Paul's words in chapter 7 when we look at our life. And even if we set aside the Bible's assessment of who we are and we just take our own judgments, we look at our own aspirations of what a good person is and who we actually are. Maybe you relate with Paul's words. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do them. And the things that I want or I don't want to do, those are the very things that I practice. Woe is me, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? In Les Miserables, there's a part where Jean Valjean has just experienced this tremendous forgiving grace from a priest who he stole from and then is brought back to his door in, in handcuffs, and he is presented with, you know, this person he sinned against who can send him back to prison because he's, he's already been in prison. This is strike one. That's all it takes. He'll go back to prison for life. And the priest says, oh, no, he didn't take those. In fact, why did you leave behind the other silver? You can have it all. And he gives it to him. And then after the cops leave, he, he says, your life has been bought. And it's this kind of salvation moment for Jean Valjean. But he's so reeling by this act of grace, because all he's known is the dog-eat-dog realm of prison. All he's known is the hardness of life. He experiences this act of love, and he's so reeling from it that he sits down at a park bench, and he's just trying to process who he is, and a kid comes by. And the kid is playing with a small piece of money, a small coin, a quarter, And as he's throwing it around and flipping it, it rolls by Jean Valjean and comes to rest right beneath the bench and he just slowly puts his foot over it and he covers it. And it's this weird moment because it's not a lot of money. It's a weird moment because the cost of stealing for Jean Valjean is life imprisonment. And it's an especially weird moment because at that moment, he's just been given a brand new start on life and he's he's about to throw it away for a quarter. But you get this sense as he's doing it that he can't take his foot off the coin. 
There's this willful part of him that is both what he wants and irresistible, putting his foot on that quarter. Have you had that moment? Have you had that experience? We need divine empowerment. And that is what God offers us in Jesus Christ. Now the thing is, that's easier said than felt. The thing is, that's doctrinally clear across the Bible. I could point to so many places. Peter tells us that God has given us of his very divine nature so that we might walk in righteousness. Jesus said that he would send the helper, the Holy Spirit. He said that if we abide in his love, we will bear fruit. So many places we could point to this, but it is easier understood than it is felt. And that's why I love about what Paul does here, because he tells us two things about this power that we need to take advantage of this morning. Notice the first one in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Okay. Again, Paul with his superlatives, going beyond and above to make his point, says to the one who's so powerful, he's capable of doing not just everything you ask not just everything you can imagine or think of, but well beyond it. He can do the things you can't imagine. He can do the things you can't think of. Jesus says it simply. He says all things are possible with God. And that, again, it's easy to know. But here is the point here. You have yet to exhaust the power of God. You have yet to run up against the ceiling of God's resources in your life. You have yet to tap out of what God desires and is capable of doing in your life. Now, I will tell you again, I deeply resonate in Frozen when she suddenly shouts in song, I can't. But I also know that I deeply resonate with that for all the wrong reasons. It's because the culture we live in, the inability to be yourself is primary, so that I can't is an expression that leads to the freedom of not being constrained. That's not the message of the gospel. However, it is the realization that we can't that is always necessary before we turn to the one who can. Okay. The life that God is desiring to build in you is not one of strong, high-shouldered independence. What he wants to do in you is not see you finally do what you could not do on your own, but in full and utter dependence on your heavenly Father, walk in humility. Okay, The difference between those two, again, is life and death. It's the difference between victory in things and, and struggling and striving. And, and the truth is, if you escape your most embarrassing and public sinful habit, Say, say from years and years, you've just, you just have a foul mouth, and it's not even, it's just automatic. If you struggle and strive to bite your tongue, and you work that out, and you walk away thinking, look at what I have accomplished. Now I am truly a good person. All you've done is fall into a deeper pit of sin, one of pride and arrogance, okay? And so here, it is a picture of dependence and you go, okay, that's fine. I see the possible potential, but that's, again, easier to know than feel. Well, that's why I love the second thing Paul says about this power. Notice he says in the second half of 20, according to the power at work within us. Okay. When he says all that we could ask or think, that's future tense. 
right? All the things we could imagine. God is capable of doing something tomorrow. But he says, the, according to what power? The power that is now, present tense, currently at work within you. Okay. Now, two things about that power. First off, let's just talk about what that power is. Going back to chapter 1, Paul has prayed that we would know the power, verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Okay. Just again, if we want to talk not about quantity of power, but quality of power, what is the power of God? It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul prays that we would know that that is the same power that is at work, again, present tense, in you. That's why in chapter 2, what does he do? He describes our condition and says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But notice verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He says, made alive, raised up, and seated. Past, present, or future tense. Past. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been made alive. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is also, as Paul says in another place, at work in your mortal bodies right now. If you want a demonstration of God's power that is personal enough for you to feel and know with confidence, okay, we all know that the Olympics are happening in China, but we don't know-know. None of us are there. There's always the possibility, right, that we've got some sort of television matrix-type scenario, and it's just not real. But if you're there, if you're sitting in the stands, you're not likely to go, I wonder if this is all a dream. If you want that kind of hands-on experience of God's power, the fact that you became a believer in Jesus Christ and are saved is already a manifestation of that great power. Okay. According to the power that now works in you. And one of the things that I would encourage you to do when, when life becomes a slog, when following Jesus becomes a struggle, when, when you feel the cost and have forgotten the reward, is to recount the experiences of God's empowerment, to measure what God has transformed and changed in your life. Okay, Because we're myopic as human beings. We hardly ever think about more than the last 48 hours and the next 42. That's just how we think. And then we measure all of life in that. And so the highest, we're like, life is great. And what we really mean is, that was a really good dinner, right? <laughs> And sometimes we do the same thing in the reverse. We think life is awful and we're looking at just a really bad Wednesday. Okay, we measure all of life through these little tiny windows. And so you need to do what the psalmist tells you to do and remember. You need to do what the Bible tells you to do and recount the good works of God. You need to say to your soul, like David does, rejoice in God and then recount his goodness to you. That power that God has worked in your life is the is the power that he desires to work in your life today and will work in your life tomorrow. Okay, it's according to that power. 
And so I want to encourage you again, church, as we continue our study through Ephesians, as we continue as a community to seek to follow Jesus and be conformed into his image, that that is only possible by the very power of God, which is available to you. And so saying I can't should be a normal and regular practice. Falling, you know, stumbling and needing the Father to pick you up is a regular practice. Learning how to be dependent is a regular practice. I want to just draw your attention to one more thing that we see in this doxology here. And I want you to notice as it says in verse chapter 3, verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Okay. Where is the place where this is to take place? What is the setting? To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And again, although this is a normal part of a doxology, to him be the glory in Jerusalem, to him be the glory in all the nations, whatever. Here it is unique. And it's unique for two reasons. One, most of the New Testament doxologies are to him be the glory in Jesus Christ. And I don't think that's surprising, right? The Bible tells us that Jesus was the full manifestation of God's glory, the very image and imprint of God himself. We have seen his glory, John says, of his friend Jesus, full of grace and truth, okay? So that's not really surprising. But the fact that he includes the church here is It's completely unique. It doesn't happen in another doxology. And notice, the church gets front billing. Not in the church, or not in Jesus and the church, but in the church and in Jesus. And sometimes commentators wrestle with this and they're like, what is going on? This is, it's not that it's inappropriate. It's just unique. Why? And I would suggest to you it's because, and this is the last thing we need to get, it's the last thing we need to hold on to, it's the last piece of the foundation. It's because the Christian life flows from the parity, from the joining of these two things, Christ and church. And again, that is essential and repeated in Ephesians. And so, Paul tells us in Ephesians that he, Jesus, is the head and we are his body. He tells us in Ephesians that Jesus, he is the husband and we, the church, is the bride. It tells us in Ephesians that Jesus is the fullness who fills all things and that we are the fullness who is filled by Jesus, okay? This pairing always goes together. In fact, we saw it in what we read out of chapter 2. You have been made alive in Christ and raised with Christ and seated with Christ, okay? It is these two things joined together, and again, this is essential to understand the way that we grow the way that we're transformed, the way that we more follow Jesus, the way that we are more conformed into his uh, image, the path to our sanctification, however you want to describe it, involves this unique and close pairing between Christ and his church. It is the people of God in fellowship with the Messiah of God, the Son of God. And again, we will see this throughout the rest of Ephesians, but we have to understand that God's path or plan for growth, transformation, for salvation involves the church in Jesus Christ. And let's be clear again. This is not about, uh, you know, this is not about being a part of an institution. 
Everyone who's connected with the church is saved. That's not the point. The saved are the church, is a better way to think of it. The point here is not that you need to come to church, or that you need to join a church, or that you need to, you know, the point here is that the people of God as a collective community, the assembly is what this word means in the Greek, that is the community where God's salvation is taking place. And it does so as that community follows their Messiah, as follows their Lord and Savior, who is in their midst, who died for their sins, who ever lives to make intercession for them at the right hand of the Father, who promised and sent the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, to work in us and through us, the body of which he is the head, the bride of which he is the husband. And look again at Ephesians chapter 5. And as Paul here talks about the role of a husband, again, he does it pointing us to Christ, and this is what he says. He says, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay. What do you see there? You see a active Jesus who is currently washing and cleansing his church, currently preparing them, currently making them spotless and blameless so that he might present them as a perfect, completed reality to himself. Christ and the church. And again, this is essential to understand for two reasons. One, because we are so individualistic in our thinking as modern people. We are so focused on the individual that we generally think of salvation in individual terms. And the question becomes, has Jesus saved your soul? Which, even if we don't mean, you know, the metaphysical, invisible part of us that goes to heaven, even if we get it right and we just mean the person, because that's what soul basically is. It's the individual person. Jesus died for the church. Jesus saves through the church. The way that he works is in this community. And so don't be surprised in chapters 4, 5, and 6 that Paul focuses on your relationship with the people in this room, on the gifts that he's given you to bless the people in this room, on the relationships he desires you to manifest with the people in this room. In fact, and I wouldn't stake my uh, interpretive uh, credentials on this idea, but I'm pretty sure that when Paul does talk about marriage and family, husband, or mothers and fathers, and even, even when he talks about slaves and servants in this passage, he's talking about people in the church. He doesn't talk like Peter does about what a woman should be doing if she's married to a non-Christian man, or how a servant should serve a non-Christian master. Here, he's assuming that servant and master are sitting in the pews together. He's assuming that husband and wife are participating in the same body. The emphasis, and if you read it, you will see it, is on growing here together into not just new people, but a new community. A living temple made up of living individual stones, but one building. Body of Christ, but many members. And then lastly, recognize that it is not possible to have the church without 
the Lord Christ, what we have in common, what unifies us, what draws us together, what makes us one body is that we share one head. And what gives life to the body is not the gifts that we use, because the gifts were given by who? The head, right? Any way we trace this, the work that God desires to do in your life, he will do through Jesus Christ, even when he does it through one another, even when he does it in the body. And we will only grow as a church as we grow in following Jesus. Together, absolutely. But there's a lot of other things we can follow, and I, in my entire ministry life, have never seen so many churches captivated by other things, absorbed in other things, unified around other causes, fighting for other battles, and sometimes even declaring other things as Lord. But if there is no Jesus Christ in our midst and ruling and reigning over our lives as our collective Lord, if we are not the people of Jesus, if we are not the body of Christ, then there is no life, no growth, no hope. And so again, the church is not a social club. It's not um, committed to changing the world or accomplishing its agenda. It is the body of Christ. It is the citizens of the kingdom where Christ is king. It is the bride awaiting the return of our true love, our focal point, our centerpiece, our husband. It is the temple which is filled with the fullness of God who is Jesus Christ himself. These are the foundations that we have to keep in mind. These are the places where we go astray when we start to think about, all right, what is it that God wants me to do? How is it that he wants me to live? What are the choices he desires me to take? In every single case, ground yourself on these realities. That first, he is calling you to respond with a life of worship to the fact that he is worthy of worship. And second, that the things that he asks you to do, he also enables. I love it how Augustine put it. He said, God, enable me for what you command, and then command what you will. And he has. And third, that the place where this growth happens, where this change happens, where we experience it, the place where God will not just be gloried in our lives here in the 21st century in Seattle, but through all generations and forevermore, amen, that place will be in this Christ and the church pairing with Jesus the King and us as subjects. And so this is why we talk so much about the importance, the significance, the value of the church. And if there was one theme of the book of Ephesians, it's this, the church. That's what he wants us to know, what he wants us to learn, what he wants us to lean into. And we need that. And the great thing about this doxology is is that it's like a perpetual motion machine. You know what I mean? Perpetual motion machine is this hypothetical invention that is so good and so efficient in making energy that as it moves, it re-energizes itself so it can move forever. It doesn't have to be fueled because it creates its own fuel. It, it literally moves against you know, the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy makes it impossible for this thing to, get, uh, to exist, but we talk about it all the time, and it's like turning lead into gold, okay? It's one of those things. 
But I want you to see that there is a perpetual motion machine to the glory of God here. That the more you experience this, the more you come to comprehend God's glory, and the more empowered and inspired you are to experience more of it, and it grows and it grows and it grows. And although it is appropriate to describe the Christian life as one with a finish line. And Paul does that. He comes to the end of his life knowing his death sentence, you know, his, his due date for his death is just about a week away in 2 Timothy. And he says, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race. He, he, it's okay to use those terms, but I want you to remember that after the race doesn't come stasis. After the race doesn't come an end, but a beginning. And I am convinced that because God is infinite in his goodness, and because eternity is presumably infinite as well, that we will infinitely grow in this perpetual cycle of comprehending, experiencing, knowing the glory of God, entering into it more deeply, and therefore be more glorifying to God, and so on and so forth. Okay. Let's pray. God, when we look at the life of Paul, we see a life with one aim. We see a captivated life. We, we see a committed and a devoted and a sacrificial and a costly life. And when we ask the reason, what it was that drove Paul, we always find the same things. We find the grace of God. We find the beauty of Jesus. We find the incredible wealth of knowing God. We find the empowerment of a God who is present and at work in our very lives. We find the church and we find Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would make the same true in our lives. That we would have only one inspiration, only one motivation, only one ambition. Make us single-minded and single-hearted to the glory of God on these things, which are truly and utterly one thing, the gospel. And just, just give us this vision and let it be laid out not just for our study of the book of Ephesians, although let it inform every reading and every sermon and every conviction and every application, Lord, but let it flow into our daily life. Every time we open the scriptures, may we open it with this orientation. Every time we're convicted of sin, may we return to the realities of this gospel. And every time we have an opportunity to take the credit, to boast in ourselves, or to lift up or raise up some other person or idea or venue or agenda, would you recaptivate our hearts with your glory? Would you instill in us a fresh vision of your goodness? And we know that even for that, Lord, even for the first step of this, we need your help. We saw it last week. You need to strengthen us for this. You need to empower for this, us for this. Even for us to know we need to be dependent requires us to be dependent upon your help. So be at work, Lord, and accomplish your will. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond now by worshiping the Lord together.